You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 80, for March 16th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about burning out in archaeology, what makes an archaeologist, and the survey of archaeologists from Charlie Poliska. So, go get that barista job you've always wanted, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Sonia in Utah. Hello. Steven in Calgary. <laughs> Hello. Uh, followed by Ruckus, which we've already heard a lot of. <laughs> and Doug in Scotland. Hello. Bill in Tucson. Good morning. Or Tucson, as they say. Um, and Chris Tuxin. in Chris in Kentucky. <laughs> Hi. All right. So uh, before we get to the show, I want to mention real quick, just in case you don't stay to the end and hear the promo or wherever I stick it in the show, we've got the GPR training webinar coming up in um, April. It's a three-part series if you haven't heard the ad yet. And there's a special, um, by the time this show comes out, it'll be down to 10% discount for all APN listeners. There's a special page. Just go to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN. Sign up, get your 10% discount. It's a pretty good value. Um, and a little bit of those proceeds for everybody that signs up using that page comes right back to the APN. So you're not only getting good training, but you're supporting the APN as well. All right. So listen for that ad, the full length ad later on in the show. Okay. So we've got uh, a handful of topics we're going to discuss today, about three different ones, two that are somewhat similar. And um, we're going to get right to it. These were suggested by our co-hosts, so I'm going to let them introduce each topic in turn. So, Doug, why don't you let us know what we're going to uh, discuss for the next 20 minutes? Yeah, so it's a, sort of a simple question that's a bit complex, and that is basically what makes an archaeologist. So are you an archaeologist if you're employed to be an archaeologist? Are you an archaeologist once you get a degree of some sort? Um, are you an archaeologist if you do archaeology? And can you be an archaeologist if you don't do archaeology? And sort of the inspiration of this came from the part where there's been, you know, archaeology is sort of a transit uh, profession. We have a lot of archaeologists who end up going into other jobs, other work um, in their career. And some of that's progression through the sort of profession in that, you know, as people move up in certain organizations, they become more managers and are, get out in the field less. But in other cases, people go into completely different fields, completely different professions because they can't, you know, it's archaeology doesn't have good pay. It's, it's not very easy to make a living at it. So the question then is, are you an archaeologist um, if you can, you know, if you're not being paid to be one? Well, you know, I have a, I have a uh, sort of a clarifying question to start this out um, because this question has been in in other ways discussed on various you know social media platforms and things like that. Um, you know what what really defines an archaeologist? And uh, you know my first question is: Do other fields have this issue? Do are there are there plumbers out there going? Oh, I was a plumber, but I'm not now. I'm working at a coffee shop. Does that still make me a plumber? Um, you know, I was. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I got a degree in physics. Does that make me a physicist or do I actually have to work at a particle accelerator? You know, I mean, does that, I mean, why, why do we even have this question? Archaeology is such an, it, it seems like it's, we, we, we make it more of an identity rather than a profession. You know what I mean? And that's, I think what you're exactly talking about, Doug, is this really just, is it an identity or does it need to be um, a profession? So I don't know. That's just, Something I was thinking about when you first said that, Doug, because because we've heard this before, and it's I just don't know if anybody else has to deal with this. I mean, I was an avionics technician back when I was in the Navy, and then after that, I don't still consider myself one. I don't know my way around any electronics anymore. I mean, it's been 15 years since I worked on that stuff, so I, I definitely don't consider myself that. But that's what my initial training was in. So I don't know. If I got out of archaeology, would I still consider myself an archaeologist in 20 years if I hadn't done it? No, probably not. So yeah, I don't know. I I feel like I'm maybe a good case study for this, and you guys can tell me what, what you think about <laughs> my situation. Right. Uh, so I have, in a nutshell, I've worked as an archaeologist in CRM for almost a decade, and on the side I've done academic digs in the summer for a few months at a time here and there, 
for about nine years. And I currently am not working in CRM. I, I work at a bar slash coffee shop slash bed and breakfast. So um, even mm-hmm. though I, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not an archaeologist right now. Um, I'm wearing many other hats. Uh, but <clears throat> on the other hand, I do stay current and active um, with the podcast, with blogging, social media. And I also keep a nonprofit organization going on. So mm-hmm. this nonprofit, AFAR, is a field school program in Belize, and we're working on setting up another field school in New Zealand. And, you know, I'm teaching high school age students and also helping organize professional conferences uh, twice a year that, you know, some of the best and brightest of Mayan archaeology have been uh, attending. So I don't know, like me in this moment right now, I'm hesitant to say I'm an archaeologist just because I, to anybody else who's not an archaeologist, because I don't want to open that can of worms and be like, (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I'm not really digging right now. So, well, that that's a fundamental problem with the definition of archaeology to the public is they think, you know, I just I just had this interaction on Twitter with somebody uh, yesterday who is, uh, I don't know, she's like some kind of life coach sort of thing, and I just commented on an episode she was in another podcast, and she's like, "Oh, you're the first archaeologist archaeologist I've ever met. Where are you digging?" And that was her <laughs> literally her first question to me, and I was like, oh, "I'm not digging anywhere," but you know, that's that's great. Um, and especially out here in the West, I mean, geez, I, I mean, I didn't dig all last year, but I surveyed 45,000 acres of, of land. That makes me an archaeologist, you know. Um, but first off, let's not gloss over bar, coffee shop, bed and breakfast. Uh, are there any rooms open? Are there? <laughs> can we have yeah, an APN not. retreat? I, I need coffee right now. Yeah, there's, <laughs> right. there's three bedrooms open. Go to grailhouse.com. <laughs> we'll have that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. So I... I know the reason why we don't know who's an archaeologist and who's not, because our RPA isn't considered an actual professional designation. If you're an accountant, you are a CPA, or you're one of the other layers below, the assistant layers. If you're a nurse, you're a nurse practitioner, you're a um, uh, LPN, or you know, if you're a midwife, you also have some kind of a certification, right? And when you get that certification, you all you have already gone to college. Then you also have this technical designation of like, you know, what you actually are after that, mm-hmm. right? So right. sometimes it's mixed in with it, right? So um, <clears throat> if you're, a, a, well, I mean, if you're a nurse, you go to nursing school, but then you have to do certain things to become a licensed nurse practitioner, right? If you're an architect, you go to college, and then you have to do what it takes to become either a lead design person or you know some other kind of specialty, or you actually are. Uh, some other kind of test to become an uh, architect with archaeologists you just pay a hundred dollars a year and you're an rpa and they say well you've got to have a master's and you got to have x amount of uh you know experience as a manager and then you're part of the club right and then all the people who don't have that say oh well that's not real that's not professional oh you know that doesn't mean anything the rpa means nothing so then we we're stuck with you know i've got a degree in anthropology but you know i work in a coffee shop or in my case, I'm a graduate student, but I also pay my dues to be an RPA. So, you know, you're stuck in limbo because you don't have an actual professional designation that's recognized throughout the entire industry. And I know later on, we're, I don't want to foreshadow anything. Later on, we'll talk about it. But that's the number one reason why our wages are horrible, too, because we don't have any kind of nationally acknowledged and recognized professional designation that forces clients and uh, agencies to pay us a certain amount of money. Yeah. And you know, you brought up something good, Bill. Um, I think, uh, I I think to me, archaeology really is uh, like whether or not you call yourself an archaeologist, it depends on how you spend most of your time. Uh, Whether that's, uh, you know, you might have other jobs, you might have other responsibilities, but but is what most of you're doing related to archaeology in some way? In, in, in as much as you would call yourself an archaeologist, even if that's writing books, or uh, even if you just hell, even if you just wrote blog posts all the time um, about archaeology because you interviewed archaeologists and you're trained in archaeology, does that make you an archaeologist? I don't know, maybe. Um, but uh, uh, Sonia, you were mentioning um, a little bit earlier in the chat that you often put down like project manager or environmental scientist on your tax forms and not necessarily archaeologist. Um, how do you, how do you see yourself since that's more your role these days is, is project manager? Um, you know, I, 
on tax forms, it, there's always a spot that, you know, where you have to sign your name and tell them what exactly you do. And if you've ever actually gone into like the, the fair labor standards and, and, um, uh, the, basically the U S labor, um, I don't know, website, you can actually look up archaeologists and how much they make and what the mm -hmm. growth market is and everything. And that's all based on what people put in on their tax forms. And I actually don't put archaeologist in there because that's not all that I do. I'm a permitted paleontologist. I'm mm -hmm. a licensed professional geologist. I'm an environmental scientist. I do, yeah. I, I, I prepare NEPA documents in addition to doing archaeological surveys and, and data recovery. So I can't, I can't just say I'm an archaeologist when I do a, uh, so many more things. Um, so I usually just put down project manager or environmental project manager or environmental scientist or something like that. Well, that makes sense given your, given your other degree, your other interests and degrees. And the fact that you're licensed in something else, hell, we don't even have a licensing, which is another topic <laughs> entirely. Utah tried to do that a few years back. Um, when I say a few, I mean like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically it was the state licensing board uh, tried to um, – require licensing for all individuals who excavated or did anything in the dirt or rock. So they included paleontologists, geologists, miners, archaeologists, everybody under that. Wow. And they wanted to require all of these people to take um, uh, some geological tests that most geologists right out of college can't pass. <laughs> and um, if you don't know anything about archaeologists, I mean, mo most of us don't have uh, an, an understanding of mining geology. So there's mm -hmm. no way we would have been able to pass that. So we put up a huge, huge fight on that. And so did the paleontologists for the state. And, uh, that, uh, we ended up getting exempted under that. So one of the, one of the criticisms I have of a, of a national or a state licensing of archaeologists is that some of us are historical archaeologists, some of our, us are museum specialists, some of us are zooarchaeologists, some mm -hmm. of us do prehistoric archaeology. We don't know everything about everything. We know a lot of things about some things. So would we actually be able to certify under, like if we were to do a national or state licensing, would we certify under one specific thing um, or not? You know, how, how, how would that go about well, that's that's an interesting question too. Um, you know, that, that it's, we can't even come together on what an archaeologist means, let alone trying to find some national or even state certification program for it. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. it's really really difficult. Um, Doug, uh, just sort of a comment as well as going back to what you said at the beginning there, Chris, um, about archaeology versus, let's say, plumbing. Now, I'm not. I can't speak for all plumbers, but. And I cannot speak for all archaeologists, but in general, archaeology tends to be a lot more fun than plumbing. And I, I think we'll probably touch on this <laughs> in our next comment, our next section. But essentially, it's a lot harder to to sort of figure out your identity when you're willing to do it outside of work. So being an archaeologist doesn't necessarily mean you get paid to be an archaeologist. Lots of us do archaeology for free in our spare time, or investigate archaeology topics. So I'd say, you know, blogs, you know, most of us have a, uh, an archaeology blog and that's, that's doing archaeology. It's a very specific type. Mm -hmm. um, but it is one of those things where you don't have this issue in some, some professions or jobs because really when you stop your job, you just want it to stop. Um, but sometimes with archaeology, it's still fun to keep going when you're not paid. That's true. And, and I think it comes back to the underlying, um, the underlying sort of, uh, I guess, training and education, you know, I mean, Doug, you and, and myself and a number of us on here, you know, we do do a lot of things after the quote unquote work stops that are still related to archaeology. You know, we do it in our free time because, because we, we like what we do. Um, you know, it's our passion. And, I don't know if that means that you can still call somebody who, let's say, is a plumber for a nine to five job, but they've, you know, they've done a lot of reading, they've done a lot of things. They're they're in some local archaeology groups. They go out and do, um, you know, uh, different uh, volunteer excavations and things like that. Are you saying that person can then call themselves an archaeologist because they do all the archaeological things? 
You know, I'm not sure that that's true if they're if their primary duty or primary job is say, as an example, again, as a plumber, and that's what their training is in, just because they do this in their free time and stuff, I don't think that means they can call them an archaeologist. Now, if they were originally trained as an archaeologist and worked in archaeology for a while and then went into plumbing and then came back, maybe then, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's an underlying sort of uh, initial start to that, that you can really call yourself officially, you know, an archaeologist. Like my, my thing is, what would you put in your LinkedIn profile? You know, would you say you're an archaeologist? Is that your job? Is that your is that your thing? If you do, then then great. But I don't know. I, I think you're conflating um, being a professional archaeologist with being with archaeology in general. That archaeology... possibly, but I think we need to. But go well, on. I, I mean, I I think that a lot of what we're talking about with uh, like you know um, certification and licensure licensing and, and stuff like that is an appropriate topic for professional archaeologists of, you know, within the CRM, you know, community. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a CRM podcast. So yeah. obviously we, we all tend to, you know, stray towards that, but you know, our archaeology is bigger than that. And and you can have like a vocationalist uh, archaeologists and, mm-hmm. and, and amateur archaeologists and archaeology is not a career. It, it, it's, um, you know, it's barely even subject matter so much as a set of methods that we use to drive subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, you know, we're, t- we're talking about the past, but, you know, you know, you also have history in, in other fields that also talk about the past, but, you know, for archaeology, it's, it's, we have, you know, methods, both, you know, physical field methods, as well as, uh, um, interpretive methods that, that we use. And, you know, and, and if you do these things, then yeah, you're, you're doing archaeology and therefore an archaeologist. But that doesn't make you a professional archaeologist. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to, so to talk about like the RPA, it's like, well, if you're if you're getting paid to do it and you're doing it at a particular, um, you know, level of um, expertise and you're getting, you know, like money's changing hands and, and there's contracts and stuff like that, that, mm-hmm. you know, you're adding extra into in, into the deal rather than just. Um, you know, who's doing what. Sonia? I wanted to add to that in saying that there are plenty of avocational archaeologists who have zero uh, educational training in archaeology, like through a university, who are fantastic archaeologists. Um, They're usually retired folks, um, but these people have an an exceptional interest in local archaeology. They know more sometimes than the professional archaeologists out there. Um, They do a lot of work protecting cultural resources, um, checking to make sure that there's no vandalism taking place, educating the public. They're very active, and they consider themselves avocational archaeologists. Mm-hmm. They may not put that down on their LinkedIn page, or if they're retired, they may actually say that, avocational <laughs> archaeologist. Right. They do all the same methods. They participate in excavations. They don't get, they don't get paid, but they consider themselves archaeologists because of their love and their applied, um, uh, their implied skill, applied <laughs> skill, mm-hmm. not implied. Um, they, they've gone out and they've done all these things, protecting these resources just like we do. And, um, and uh, I mean, I, I think it's kind of fair to call them avocational archaeologists. I guess taking a different look at this as well, archaeology also, so when I was, like Chris, um, when I wasn't being an archaeologist, sometimes it's much easier to say that you're an archaeologist than to be a barista slash bartender slash um, innkeeper slash. Um, but but archaeology does have like a, a brand that allows us to. It's people recognize it now. They may not recognize it in the correct way. Um, we've all got oh, you dig dinosaurs, but. A lot of times it is a lot easier to explain to people I'm an archaeologist and oh no, actually I um I kinda do archaeology, but I also do this and I also do that. And you know, ten minutes later their eyes have already glazed over and usually it's just easier to say I'm an archaeologist. That's a good point. Yeah, that is true. That is true. All right, we're gonna cut to a break real quick, and we'll come back and pick this up on the other side, and uh, and lead into another topic as well. Back in a second. 
everyone. I'm here with Dan Bigman of Bigman Geophysical with an awesome special offer for APN listeners. Dan, what have you got for us? Well, uh, for the past year, I've been everywhere I've went, people have requested training on ground penetrating radar. And they've all voiced concerns that there's nowhere to get accessible quality training uh, for a really reasonable price. So what Bigman Geophysical is doing is we're going to put on a three-part webinar series on GPR basics, ground penetrating radar basics, that's going to take place Mondays, April 18th, April 25th, and May 2nd, 2016. In this course, we're going to break it into three parts. Part one is going to go over basic concepts and theory of ground penetrating radar. Part two is going to talk about processing data, visualizing data, and GPR data interpretation. And then part three is going to be all about case studies and applications of ground penetrating radar to uh, several different industries, including archaeology. And how long does each class period last? So each class period is going to have a live section on Monday uh, for each of those Mondays. It's going to be about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half of, of class time. And then uh, there's going to be additional time for question and answers throughout each course. What we're also going to do is do an unlimited replay for each topic for each week from Wednesday to Sunday. So if you miss it or you want to see it again, which we hope you do, then you'll be able to log into a special website and replay uh, the webinar. And how much is this going to cost us? So the regular price of this webinar is $2.99. And what we're going to do for APN listeners as a special deal is give a 25% discount for the first seven days that we're running registration. So that's going to go from March 7th till March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern time for that 25% discount. After that, we're still going to give APN listeners uh, a discount that's, uh, you know, just for them, it's going to be 10%. But if you really want to uh, get in this for relatively inexpensive, then the 25% off is going to give you a rate of 225 for the course. So where can people go to sign up for this class? They just have to pop over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN to get the special rate. That's B-I-G-M-A-N-G-E-O-P-H-Y-S-I-C-A-L.com forward slash APN. And there they can sign up and go to a secure website to enter all their information and get that 25% off. So whether you're a seasoned archaeologist or just getting started, this course will really be an asset for everyone. Head over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN, or you can click through from the APN website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to get your 25% off today. Okay, we're back. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about... We've been talking about what defines an archaeologist. Um, I got a quick question for you guys uh, because there's a lot of side chat. We've got a, a back chat going on on Skype here um, constantly when we're recording these podcasts so we can keep our thoughts straight. And there's a lot of discussion about RPA and how RPA is our really our only way to designate a professional archaeologist in the United States. And, um, and But also the fact that RPA doesn't also really mean a whole lot because it doesn't take a lot to get your RPA. I mean, it it takes a master's degree technically, but, um, or at least a thesis, but it's, uh, that doesn't necessarily make you a quote unquote professional archeologist. So what I'm wondering from you guys is what if, a what if another organization or even an existing one, but what if another organization came along that provided, um, their job was to provide, uh, ongoing, um, uh, recurrent training, and then they had their own special level designations. This is assuming that the federal and state licensing agencies can't get their act together and actually do this. But so, so we have to do it ourselves. But let's say a third party comes along and and creates training courses and programs that you have to take, say, even annually, and uh, in special topics in in different field sciences. And let's use archaeology as an example. Would you guys give that any? credence would you guys give that do you think the field would give that any um legitimacy uh if you know probably wouldn't happen right away but if it was something that was recurrent like other like other licensing bodies for other industries where you had to take it you know certain tests or whatever um you know not just pay your dues uh every year i'm, I'm not sure what uh what do you guys think about that i think um it would be uh, you know like ongoing training is always a good thing mm-hmm. uh, and, and um certification like some you know getting extra initials after your name uh you know and like uh what is it microsoft has the uh um certified professional or whatever um you know th those are good things and and it makes it easy to communicate you know your basic level of whatever um on the other hand 
uh, I know quite a few people who hire who would be pointedly against it because these people are just going to ask for more money and it's not a requirement. And, and if it's not a requirement, then extraneous stuff is suspect. Well, um, you know, and, and I've gotten this for RPA because RPA carries very little weight in the States and almost no weight up here mm-hmm. that, you know, with the, uh, um, you know, uh, permits and uh, in Ontario licensing and stuff like that, that even the goals of RPA are already redundant. And, and you know, it's like, well, it doesn't matter if you're RPA, RPA or not. What matters is if the province will give you a permit. Um, and, and being RPA is not, you know, necessarily a guarantee for that. Mm-hmm. Well, so, um, you know, in, in my mind, as a practitioner of archaeology, it's like, hell yeah, you know, um, Ongoing training should be a requirement, and and um, and if you get extra initials after your name, yeah, sure, you know, good, because um, it it helps with the communication. It's it's good for sticking on your CV and, and letting people know what you can do. But you know, on, on the flip side, it won't mean much um, to a good portion of the um, people who hire. Well, my thinking is, if if something like this did come along. It would have to get, it would have to gain its own legitimacy from the industry, right? Just, just the way some people give legitimacy to RPA and, um, you know, those other standards that we're talking about. Some people really look at RPA as as the be all end all. You know, those people aren't generally archaeologists; they're other companies hiring archaeologists, and they say you must have an RPA. Um, yeah. But if if as a as a company owner. You had two people come to you for a job. One of them had taken all this training and and were calling themselves a you know certified under this other company. Uh, and it looks like what and they can go to this website and say, oh, that's what certification means under that company's you know guidelines. And the other person doesn't have any of that. I mean, I'm as a jo- as a business owner, I'm going to look at that other person that's taken all this additional training and say, just like anything on your CV, it's extra bullet points, and, and you're going to look at those and say, okay, that. That means something. And then maybe later on, when I'm looking for a job and I put out a job posting, I say, uh, hey, you need to have a bachelor's degree, uh, a field school, and you need to have certification from XYZ company, just like people sometimes say you need to have RPA. That would give it legitimacy. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. I don't that's think a- you get that, um, honestly. Uh, and and uh, part of the reason, well, I, I think you're more likely to get a background conversation between people who hire like, Hey, have you ever hired someone with this kind of certification? Cause if you get the opportunity to do it because they really know their, their stuff, mm-hmm. um, that's probably as good as it's going to get. Um, it, it would be a very weird thing for, um, you know, just as, as a general field tech or, you know, whatever, um, for, for that to go. And, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is because the job is so variable you know, it's like, what do you have experience in? That would be very hard to certify for an overall position rather than like an individual project. Right. What I mean? Yeah. I'm with Stephen on, on a lot of those points. And I think that RPA is maybe a proxy for um, demonstrating your commitment to the field and demonstrating you know, your ongoing professional development and, you know, all these other things that you can take, uh, whatever they are, certifications, we use those as proxies to demonstrate on paper that, yeah, I'm, I'm really dedicated to this. I'm on the forefront. I'm on my A game. And it's really difficult to communicate that to a lot of times clients or, you know, people in different areas. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with Steven on like, it's difficult for RPA to be the one size fits all. Yes, that's what makes you an archaeologist, but it's a good proxy. Arizona, we're talking about certifications and everything. Arizona and New Mexico are both notoriously difficult to uh, run projects in because they have such a high uh, level of requirements for you to be a principal investigator. So I, I don't really know a lot about uh, New Mexico, other than the fact that I don't qualify as being a PI there, but I've been doing archaeology for more than 10 years. I have a graduate degree, and I've planned, done almost all the levels of archaeology, and I still have to apply and maybe keep my fingers crossed, maybe, that the Arizona State Museum would let me be a principal investigator on a project here, because you have to have a graduate degree, you have to have 
um, you have to show, demonstrate that you have um, uh, that you have created both an excavation and a large survey from research design, permitting, all the way through to execution, and that you actually did the field work. I mean, in Arizona, there's probably fewer principal investigators than there are professors teaching archaeology in the state. And a lot of the people who teach archaeology and run projects all around the world wouldn't qualify as a principal investigator in the state of Arizona. So, uh, well, Bill, Bill, does that count for private land as well, or is that just state and federal no, land? No, that's state and federal land, but of course okay. it's a western state. Yeah, for so, sure. So, you know, like most of it's, 50, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> more than 50% of it is federal land. And it, that also doesn't apply for tribal uh, land either. However, most of the tribes kind of, I mean, they, they collaborate at least as far as who can do work with the Arizona State Museum, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not on the same page when it comes to repatriation and, you know, doing the actual work on reservation land. But when it comes to who can do work, you know, if you don't fit the qualifications in the state of Arizona or you don't have a good, strong relationship with that tribe, it's going to be hard for you to become a project director on their uh, tribal land. But uh, I, by ratcheting up that re- degree requirement for the leadership of um, uh, projects, it, I think the wages are a little bit higher in Arizona. It's very hard to get a job and work in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you get a job, most of the people are like, uh, you know, they kind of just stay here in Arizona. So it stays like, you know, a really insular group, which is not very good. But on the other hand, people have whole careers here. And I didn't really see that when I was working in, uh, you know, Virginia or Illinois or Washington. I mean, it seemed like there was a few people who had been doing CRM for a long time in Washington state, but most of them, by the time they have kids and are in middle age, they're, they're just getting out of it because they can't make enough money and they can't stay alive. Okay, well, I think um, I think we're actually going to shift uh, shift gears just a little bit here because I want to have a I want to uh, have an entire episode talking about you know certification and things like that and what does what does that mean because it's a really important topic and it's something that you you almost can't have a conversation on a social media platform without some sort of licensing or certification come up or RPA come up for that matter. Um, yeah, and and I'll try to remember to link in the show notes to the episode where we actually interviewed the current president of the RPA. Um, it's, it's, it's back there a little ways. It was about a little over a year ago, I think. And it was, he had some interesting things to say. Um, but still, you know, RPA is what it is. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let's shift gears just a little bit and get kind of back to what we were talking about in the first segment. And, um, Chris, why don't you introduce, uh, uh, what you're going to talk about in the idea that you had? Yeah. So this ties into what we've been talking about, about what makes an archaeologist. So, uh, you know, we haven't really come to one firm conclusion. Uh, It's, you know, it depends on who you ask and where you are. But anyhow, if you're an archaeologist, the issue is your self-identity as an archaeologist. Do you need to divorce yourself from that identity? And this is something that I've written about on my blog. Um, There's times when your self-identity as an archaeologist becomes problematic. And what, what I mean by that is that when you form the basis of your self-worth and all of your personal validation as an archaeologist and you run through the gamut of everything that we face in our profession, um, that's a lot of pressure that you put on yourself and on your self-worth. And I think that that's unhealthy. And I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm not like a professional <laughs> or anything. <laughs> to put that caveat in there. But mm-hmm. I do think that it plays a huge factor in the burnout that we see with a lot of people in our profession. And I think that we can all agree that there's a lot of burnout and there's a lot of negativity that we see, especially in CRM. So, Well, what do you think causes the burnout, though? Are you saying that people are, are focusing too much on being an archaeologist? They're not going home and, and just cracking up on a beer and watching, you know, binge watching House of Cards? Or... Are, are they are they doing to what what's causing the burnout in your mind yeah well uh i'm i'm seeing bill and i completely agree with uh, bill's comment in the in the back chat it's mm-hmm. shitty projects at shitty companies but uh it's it's a lot of things you know it's uh it's um more than just the shitty projects at shitty companies it's you know what happens when like you can't be an archaeologist you know like if 
if you have to be a barista slash bartender slash innkeeper, <laughs> you know, like, is, is that something that's going to weigh on you and be like, oh man, I have, I have failed as an archeologist. Like I'm a failure at being an archeologist. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a bad professional. And it's one of those things that there's times when you have to say like, okay, like me as a working professional archeologist isn't everything, you know, like you can step away from it. You can walk away and that's kind of what I've tried to get at in a few blog posts, and Bill and I have debated on social media about it sometimes too. And you know, there's times when I think it's it's healthy to walk away from the idea of being an archaeologist, but it's all about intent, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Like, what makes you an archaeologist? I think it has to do with your intent. Like, do you intend to keep pursuing archaeology? Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if your long game is, yes, you're going to keep playing the game, then, yeah, you're still an archaeologist, but it gives you the flexibility to take on other projects and, you know, hopefully keep your passion alive. And I think that that's really the thing that's important is to, like, find other things that will keep your passion alive. And, you know, like, uh, uh, Webby, you've talked about um, the Art of Charm podcast before. I've been listening to a lot of that lately. Mm-hmm. And to draw an example that I think is useful for us in CRM, uh, Jordan Harbinger recently interviewed a photographer who he, you know, works with celebrities and stuff. And he got to like kind of the top of his field, but, you know, he, he talks about, you know, um, keeping the passion alive and the thing that works for him is giving back and doing things, you know, voluntarily and just pursuing whatever esoteric interests you might have. And I, I see that happening a lot in archaeology as well. And, you know, I do it with the nonprofit every summer. I take off from probably the most profitable season for CRM in the United States. And I just go take off to Central America and work <laughs> with kids. Uh, but it keeps me, you know, really stoked about archaeology. And I, I see a lot of other people doing that too. You know, they've got like publications, public archaeology days, stuff like that. And, you know, not all of that has to do directly with your workload or your client base and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. That's just my two cents on the identity of archaeology is like, it's not really a rigid thing. You can, you can play fast and loose with it. Well, I definitely agree with that. Um, There are a lot of things you can do. And sometimes you just have to you know, I, I actually respect people that um, that don't just, uh, you know, when the when the project ends or the field season ends or something like that, and they're just they're just tired of playing the game for a little while, and they decide I'm going to go do something else and and just, you know, concentrate on something else for two or three months or or even a year for that matter, but then come back to archaeology because it really is their their passion. To me, that's I, I love that we're in a field that you can actually do that in. You know, there's not a lot of other fields where you could take such a significant break and then come back to it. They'd be like, well, what have you been doing for the last year or two? You know, but in archaeology, I mean, if you've still got the experience and the ability, then you can probably get that, a, a job, you know, even if it's a, a short one. But, um, you know, people that – and there's nothing. There's also nothing wrong with taking a break just to uh, – even just to learn new skills, you know, or to reset your brain and, and to, and to do something else, even if that skill is, you know, I mean, I mean, like where, where you're working, Chris, I mean, you can, you can, as an individual person could choose to see that as, Oh, I failed as an archeologist, but, a uh, a really engaging, um, driven person can see that as a way to build better networking skills with people they don't even know, you know, yeah. working in sort of a customer service, um, industry like that you get to talk to a lot of people just on the fly and and that's a really good skill to have as well and and can help you later on yeah and you never know like where your network is going to take you to and uh you know it doesn't always have to be strictly among professional archaeologists and uh i don't know it's kind of neat like i've never hit the burnout period um i'm i'm seeing in the back chatter you know i I don't feel like any of us have on the CRM podcast because otherwise we wouldn't really be devoting our, our weekends to chattering about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It but, takes a lot to know. talk on a Sunday morning about CRM archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, you've got to do what you got to do, whatever it is, you know, hobbies, staying connected with friends outside of archaeology, you know, keeping healthy relationships with your family, stuff like that. Just nurture yourself and, you know, keep the passion alive and, mm-hmm. you know, You've got to give back in order to get something out of it, you know. 
Well, Chris, I'm on LinkedIn right now trying to endorse you for innkeeper, uh, barista, bartender, but I can't. Oh, I, uh, I need to add that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I can't. It won't let me add a skill. <laughs> <laughs> he has too many too many job duties to even add. It's right. Limit five things. Yeah. <laughs> is, your, is your uh is your place anything like those ones in game of thrones because they always seem like they're having fun in there <laughs> yeah it's a blast nice nice oh people as, don't as far die as... good good <laughs> those are the best bars where people don't die yeah um uh, going back to the burnout thing i think another thing that can destroy your entire enthusiasm for life basically is to work on a crew with a bunch of negative people. Oh my God. Somehow yes. have, oh man, that is so true. Somehow believe it's such a drag. Yeah. When they, when they get that diploma that the job they get was supposed to be like six figures, you know? So mm-hmm. because they're out there in the mud or in the desert struggling for 35,000 a year or something like that, or, you know, on a temporary project, they're like, absolutely frustrated with life they are mad that they didn't get where they wanted to be they're thinking well i was going to be an archaeologist and it was going to be like half indiana jones but more like the professor half and it's not happening and so they just sit there and complain and complain and complain and then another thing that can destroy you is uh, unhealthy living so drinking constantly every day eating gas station garbage all the time i mean you feel like crap you hear people telling you crap and then you go out and do a hard job you know, it makes you feel bad. And then, you know, you go back to a room and it all starts again, right? So one of the things I found, especially during the recession, is that I had just slipped into a super negative spiral. And I was so frustrated with the way that my career was going and that, you know, I was like uh, emotionally, you know, crushed at the way that the company I was working for treated me. And, you know, every it was everybody else's fault everybody was to blame and everything Mm -hmm. and then you know of course i got laid off so then that made it even worse because i had a family and a mortgage and everything and so the negative thoughts like just continued to flow and so i went to graduate school to you know get my final degree i always wanted to and i had a chance to do it so i decided i will it still took like you know almost a year of graduate school before all that negativity had washed away. And I was working around people who were doing great projects, professors that were doing awesome stuff. People were encouraging me. I was learning what I wanted to learn, you know, and it still took months for all that negativity to flow out of my body. Right. Um, so yeah, that's one thing I've noticed when I work on crews where everything's like, you know, everybody's okay and everybody's in a good mental state, things are fine. And I feel okay with my career choice. And the longer I spend around bad crews, the worse I feel about my life, the worse I feel about my career. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm going to bring that right back up uh, when we get back from this final break uh, for our final segment. Back in a second. Profiles in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. And Bill had just got done talking about, uh, you know, the negativity in the profession and how that can really bring you down and things like that. And I've got to make a comment too. anybody listening to this that's on the Archaea Field Techs group on Facebook or the uh, uh, North American Archaeological Tech Forum. There are some posts in there that can really get to bring in the job, the industry down. And, And, you know, unfortunately, Half the time when these posts end up going super negative and they have 80 comments on them is when some undergrad comes in and says, hey, I'm looking to to get a job in archaeology. What do you guys think about this? Or where should I do this? Or, you know, they have some advice they're legitimately looking for from the field. 
and then invariably 10 comments in somebody's like just run just don't even do this at all you know yeah. don't don't get into the field and then it just goes to hell from there right and then all the good comments get lost in all the <laughs> negative comments it's like seriously people what do you what are you doing in an archaeology field uh, in an archaeology facebook group if you don't even like what you do and you just want to yeah. be negative the whole time you know it's crazy it's this pissing contest for who is more burned uh. out yeah, and I, I'm a moderator on that group, and I'm torn between, you know, free speech and just kicking them the f out. So it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I I don't know. It's it just irritates me. I've recently found that it's pretty entertaining to read some of the Acra L comments as well mm -hmm. uh, from a lot of texts uh, complaining, especially about about um, pay and things like that. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. You guys are talking about how much you get paid, which is fine, no problems there, but. Then you're talking about how much you're, you think the company makes off of you. I'm yeah. like, dude, you, you guys no don't idea. know what you're talking about. You have no idea how business works. Well, and that's a, and that's a good point, Sonia. And one of the, you know, we had an email exchange a few days ago about possible topics for this show. And a lot of business stuff is what Sonia brought up. And I think that's really important. We could have a whole a segment, if not a show, on how your billable rate um, your, your billable rate for your company breaks down because it's, oh, it's different for most companies. And then there's multipliers and there's all this other stuff. And I think, I think that's a, a good thing that we should get into, um, you know, as a future show topic, cause you're right. I mean, it, a lot of this, a lot of this negativity comes from ignorance, not ignorance in a bad way. Just like they just no, don't no, know no. how the industry works, you know, exactly. um, in the it, upper we're levels. We're not trained in business. We're trained in science. Exactly. It's social science and some, you know, you know, real applied sciences. And, mm -hmm. and I just, we frequently forget that we work for a business. If we're a CRM archaeologist, we usually work for a business and we're not trained in that. Mm hmm so it's it's um it, it, it <laughs> that's one of the things that just drives me crazy. Yeah. Um just the lack of understanding and it's not their fault. It just takes some mentoring and teaching and using using complaints as a learning uh, mm -hmm. uh example. Yeah. Well, and and bringing this back to uh, uh Chris real quick and and his talk about topic about burnout. Um I I just uh I feel like maybe some people, especially these people that get all negative about it, um, I feel like sometimes maybe instead of instead of getting caught with your pants down when the field season ends and you have no plans, plan to be off for three months. Maybe even plan to be off for three months in the fall or something like that. You know, when yeah. when when you should be working. Um, you know, save really diligently save some money through the beginning first two thirds of the field season, and for the last third. Just take some planned time off. I think it would make your psyche, your psyche just that much better when you're like, I, I have caused this to happen. This job is over. I'm happy this job is over. And now I'm going to go do what I want to do for two or three months. And then I'm going to come back to it, a refreshed person, rather than having it thrust upon you because, you know, the field season ended or something like that. And you got to plan for that, of course. You can't just let it happen. But I don't know. Maybe that would help. Maybe it wouldn't. The only other thing I'd... I'd like to add all that time that I was hating on my company and hating on my career. What was, <laughs> yeah. what was I really doing to make any money for that company? Like how was I doing anything to try and improve things or to make them more efficient? Right. Was I, you know, trying to be a little bit more realistic or talk to them about what they're doing as far as their proposals or maybe learn a little bit more about the proposal process, you know? Well, that's hard when you're in the field. I understand that you're tired at the end of the day, but like, you know, what are you doing to further yourself at all? Or mm -hmm. are you just sitting in the room drinking, you know, uh, five or six Budweiser's before passing out, just constantly thinking about how bad your day was, how bad this company sucks, how these, you know, high and mighty PIs are making so much money at the top while you're out there actually doing all the work, right? Right. But, you know, are you furthering yourself in any kind of way whatsoever? Usually not. And then yeah. usually they're out of the industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chris? Like, grab your Budweiser and go talk to the PI you know, <laughs> or project manager because they're going through the same stuff you are. They're posted up in a hotel room in the middle of nowhere, you know, scratching their head over what to do with their per diem. And, you know, like, you could stand to learn a thing or two from them, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. I went through a lot of that, especially early on. I was a crew chief maybe too early for my own good. And, I was really lucky to learn from some really good crew chiefs and some really good project managers and PIs. And so it was just one of those things, like, how do you use your time? And I was just, like, hungry to learn from 
whatever people were going through. And, you know, there were plenty of PIs above me who were super burned out. And so like, I kind of learned from them, like what not to do, but then there were also plenty of other good examples of, you know, that really inspired me and helped me keep my passion for the industry. Well, a, a quick, uh, a quick note to any of my future employees, don't come up to me with a Budweiser. I will instantly, uh, judge you on your personal choices. But, um, anyway, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that goes back to what Bill was saying about filling your body with garbage. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, hey, some of these towns don't even have vegetables, let alone delicious micro beers. We take what we can get, right? It's yeah, true. That's true. Good point. Um, you know, I, I want to point out something too. Um, we, we have another podcast called profiles and CRM and I, I've just done, uh, 50 episodes and, uh, about to record the 51st episode today, actually. And one, one, I, I really haven't sat down and, and, and tabulated all the data because I asked the same questions of every single person. And depending on how much experience they have and their education level and things like that, the answers uh, are, are wildly different. And one of the things I've just known, just sort of almost anecdotally, just out of doing this without actually looking at the data, is that I can almost peg Exactly. When when somebody's only been in the field a, a few years or less, um, when they when I ask them the question, uh, you know, what would you do to make CRM better? Um, and almost to a T, they almost always say uh, more consistent work and more consistent pay and benefits. And then people that have been in this for 10, 15 years, they always say, what can you make CRM better? They're like, oh, they get into all these philosophical decisions, uh, uh, discussions about, uh, you know, better working between the agencies and things like that. And, you know, we need to have better public archaeology and we need to, and all these really thoughtful sort of things. And, and the reason is, I mean, like we said before, this goes back to the negativity thing. People just don't understand that, you know, Nobody is nobody up here in the in the upper echelons of CRM are, are really actively trying to make your pay and benefits better. I mean, a lot of companies are just trying to make payroll, quite honestly, and and that's why they end up underbidding is because they're just trying to make payroll and keep their current staff employed, right? They're not driving around in in Jaguars. Well, some of the companies are, but most of them are not going to. You know, they're not running around doing that kind of stuff with all this money. They're just trying to make payroll and keep their company afloat, right? So. I think uh, I think having a better understanding of um, you know the big picture and doing some of that research and maybe asking um, some of the people that have been in this for a while what their ideas are on the big picture because you also don't see the negativity on Facebook from the older the older people in the crowd the people that have been doing this a while it's usually the younger people in the crowd that are um, you know spouting off most of the negativity at least from what I've seen um, the older ones they might say oh just you know get out and run for the hills, but it's more said in jest than, than I think in a serious, uh, sort of way. So anyway, I don't know. We, we, we can't all live the, live the thug life and drive around in a minivan like Doug, like Bill does. So, you know, I, Bill, I've seen your pictures. I, I saw a picture of you sitting in the back with your legs sprawled out. Uh, this was a couple years ago, I think. And you know, I think your wife was driving and you're all chilling back there. Uh. Watching the DVD player, yeah, you know that's yeah. how I roll. That's, you know, that's you were talking about. What's my hobby? It's doing as little as possible. Yeah, that's even, a great even, hobby. You know, meditation, just literally sitting there and not even trying to think. No, I'm just joking. Uh, our previous discussion throughout this entire uh, podcast, the whole time I've wanted to get to this uh, survey that I just got in my email. I believe it was discussed on a Facebook group. Um, for archaeological technicians, but it's uh, a survey that was done by an archaeologist named Charlie Paliska, Charles Paliska, and it's uh, about um, our the work conditions in our industry. It, actually, it doesn't have a title. I have it open right now. Oh, results of a, of a survey for field archaeologists. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, and cultural resource managers. Well, I I spent some time last night looking at it, and this morning I spent a little bit of time, and it's open right now as we talk. And a lot of the things that we've been discussing are actually covered in this uh, survey. So some of the things that I thought were uh, pretty amazing, actually, is the age of our uh, field. So you know, this isn't this isn't like uh, you know a professional poll. It was by volunteer individuals who all um, took the survey on on Facebook. So it's not like it was you know created by some media organization or whatever. But uh, 
basically the thing that I thought was most amazing is that is how young we all are. Um, the people who answered the poll, this, it might be because you know people of our age are really using social media and all that stuff, but 72% of the people who responded to the poll were in their 20s and 30s. I thought that was you know pretty remarkable to see how many people of that age are in archaeology. But then uh, maybe because we used uh, social media to tabulate the results, it drops off really fast in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So, you know, I don't know. My parents still use Facebook. They're constantly, I think that's like the only way that they even contact me anymore. (laughs) But, uh, you know, folks that age are definitely on Facebook. So I yeah. don't know if it's that they're not part of these archaeology groups or that they didn't respond to the uh, survey, but um, you know that might be something to look into. The other thing that I thought was interesting is uh, more than fifty percent of the archaeologists that responded identified as female. So mm-hmm. it's you know either it was uh, you know forty-eight percent it looks like here versus fifty percent, so slightly more female than male, but. Uh, uh, that yeah. is actually something that I've been noticing a lot in the um, uh, as as an, as a cultural resource management archaeologist that most of the time the people I'm working with are women. I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely awesome. Uh, however, if you go down to the very bottom of the survey, you can see that the most of the people who uh, made the most in archaeology were men, mm-hmm. and a lot of the lower wage positions were mostly women. So that that is not awesome. That's the opposite of awesome. Yeah, that's anyway, I, typical in most industries, I'd say, or a good chunk. Well, I just want to kick it back to you guys uh, and ask what insights you guys saw from this. Well, let me let me say real quick, um, just as a little uh, to frame this for somebody who hasn't seen the survey yet. They had four hundred and seventy nine um, responses, and. We've got about seven more minutes to talk about this. We're going to devote um, probably most, if not all, of the next episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, which will be out in two weeks uh, from when you're hearing this, if you're hearing it on Wednesday, um, to this entire survey. So, you know, a lot of our co-hosts haven't had a chance to really absorb this yet and get into it, and we want to really give it some uh, traction. But since this survey just came out, we're, uh, we're, we're diving into it a little bit right now. You know, um, one question... Uh, uh, Bill, just to continue on with what you were saying on the comparing wages by gender graphic at the end of the survey, one thing this particular graphic doesn't take into account, it's just comparing wages to gender. It doesn't include, um, uh, at least from what I can tell here, yeah, it doesn't include the position that those people had. So does that mean that um, uh, we'd have to look up at another graph, I think. Does that mean that fewer women are in upper-level positions and there's a lot more women in the survey that were in, say, field tech positions, which may skew those results? Because field techs make less just inherently. Um, I think to really have this graph make any sense, you'd have to split this up by position. You know, comparing wages by gender for technicians, comparing wages by gender for principal investigators, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's a, a little bit disingenuous to say that you're doing it by... Um, uh, just by gender and wages. The results are more complicated than that. You're right. Because if you look at um, wage wage intervals that he created of how wages are split up um, within the industry, men and women were basically making about the same amount if you go up for every $10,000. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that table, it shows that the wages for men and women are roughly you know equivalent. But then you're right. You go down to the other one when it's just discussing, you know, how much money each person makes, it doesn't account for the position. So that's where it looked like there's pretty big uh, gender inequity. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, he has all the data. I guess we can always ask him to break it down that way. If it was done in Excel, he can just do a crosstab type thing. It, it would be nice if he would, uh, yeah, if he would release this just the table of data so people could run their own analyses on this stuff. That would be that would be handy. Maybe we'll ask him to do that and see if uh, see if we can't get it for next time. Well, maybe we should ask him to come on the show. That's a good point. We'll do that. We'll do exactly that. Um, yeah, anyway, um, does anybody else have any quick uh, insights they want to talk about in the last four minutes um, regarding to this really survey? I made an, I made an in- interesting observation um, in the uh, where do you see yourself in five years section. Mm-hmm. Uh, 14% or 14.6% said uh, they were going to remain in CRM and in the general position that they're currently in. Some wanted to move up about the same amount, 15.1% wanted to move up, mm-hmm. like from becoming a field tech to a crew chief. And then 13.7%, so almost 
within just a few numbers, uh, like uh, counts um, of that of those percentages, saying people wanted to remain in CRM but obtain full time position in public service, mm-hmm. which is the state or the federal government. And I found that very interesting because state and federal government positions are very few and far between, and they're also highly competitive. <laughs> right. Um, and, and one of the things that I've learned talking to students just coming out of college, I usually ask them, well, what do you want to work in? Do you want to work in the public sector or do you want to work in uh, the private sector? And they're usually like, well, I'd, I think I'd like to work for an agency. Like I want to be a, a, a DOT archaeologist or for the BLM or for the city. And I kind of go, they did teach you in school that you need to have some experience in NEPA and NHPA and some understanding <laughs> of the process before you actually move into that. And, and they're like, oh, well, yeah, of course. You know? And I said, mm-hmm. but you're expecting to get that right out of college. And they're like, well, yeah, of course. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, so the two, the two answers are not jiving with one another. Right. And to be fair, this one says, where do you see yourself in five years? And I just, I found it interesting that, I mean, if you actually look at the counts, 66 and 68 want to remain in CRM in the private sector, right? Mm-hmm. But 62 people want to go into um, the public sector, want to go into state or um, federal government. And those positions are just few and far between. Not that I'm trying to be negative, but... yeah. So I, I have Is that a, realistic? It's it's probably not, and and it's it's interesting because I have a way more informal version of this question on the profiles podcast, which is, what is your future in CRM? Basically, you know what it, what it's the I, I don't put a time frame on it. I just say what is your you know your your goal in CRM, your CRM career, and again, I have basically two answers that I get. All, everything distills down to these two answers. From the younger kids, it's oh I either want to move up or I want to own a company at some point. That's that's what people usually like under thirty say. Anybody who's older says, I just want to still be alive and able to not be physically incapacitated to do this job. <laughs> that's that's the, the two that's answers you generally get. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, I wonder, too, uh, a lot of these questions, I feel like you really do have to um, throw in some more data with these. Like, uh, you know, th- these people that are answering, they want to remain in the same general position that they're in. What percentage of those people are field techs? What percentage are p- principal investigators? What percentage are women? What percentage are men? You know, I mean, there's, it seems like that you can't just have a good answer to that question, where yourself in five years without understanding the context behind the people that made the response. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who are the, who are the people that are saying, saying 60, you know, this, this 14% of people, who are these guys who want to be in public service? Are they fresh out of college or are they people who are like, yeah, I've got like 10, 15 years of experience. I think in five years, I'd like to get a nice cushy government job. Right. Right. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Um, like like we assumed before we started the show, we could spend an entire show on this. I just wanted to mention the survey because it just came out, give people a chance to read it. And in um, two weeks from, from when you're hearing this podcast, if you're hearing it on the day it came out, uh, we will have a full analysis of this, um, of this report. And we'll try to get Charlie on as well uh, and see if he can join us to talk about um, his motivation behind the survey and some of the conclusions that uh, that he came to. But for now, um, we're going to close this episode. And if you've got any questions or comments, please leave them wherever you saw this podcast and we will respond. And uh, we we do receive a few listener questions sometimes that we will do on the air, but we don't receive enough. I'd like to see more of that, you know, and get people so we can so we can use our our combined decades of experience to answer your questions about CRM. So um Ask us anything you want, uh, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you saw this podcast. See you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag crmarcpodcast or you can tag at arcpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. 
If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. Bye. See you see later. You. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>